0: Good morning, Church. For those of you I haven't met, I'm Stephen, and I'm a second-year apprentice here at Grace Point, and I'll be bringing God's Word to us this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, please prepare our hearts to receive your Word today. Without your work in us, we cannot hope to produce lasting change. By your mercy, please do the heart work that we have no power to do to the glory of your name. Amen. So most, if not all of us, have experienced disunity at some point in our lives. Uh, If you've ever had an ex-best friend, then you know what disunity is like. Uh, If you've ever seen or heard of someone that has gone through divorce, then you know what disunity is like. If you've ever watched a poorly performing sports team or if you've been in a company where the HR and the CEO aren't in line with one another, or you've been in a church where there are fractures within the congregation, then you'll know what disunity is like. And disunity is never, ever pleasant. And that's no surprise. God's design for his people is to be in unity. We were made to be relational beings. We don't want conflict with other people. It's uncomfortable. We're also creatures of worship. We were created to worship the one true God together as one. Our pre-for, pre-sin state was to be unified as one peoples with one ultimate purpose of glorifying the one true God. And yet what we see in our world today is that disunity is everywhere. Within every relationship, there's a risk of disunity. Historically, nations have divided again and again. Divorce rates are higher than ever. There's more polarization of opinion. Disunity is everywhere. And so what happens between our pre-sin state And where we are now. You guessed it. Sin. Right? But what sin? Which sin? And what can we do about it as we live in this sinful world? Well, what Paul does in our passage today is he helpfully points us to one of the big reasons behind this this disunity we see today. And he also points us to the solution, which is very helpful. And I'll tell you what they are now, because I'm not one to keep you waiting. Uh, but one of the big reasons for disunity is selfishness. And the solution to selfishness is knowing God and knowing your neighbor. It's not doing self-affirmations that you're a good person. Uh, it's, it's not doing one act of kindness a day, although that's a good thing to do. And it's not selling all of your possessions so that you're only living by the bare necessities. No, Paul says that the solution is knowing God and also knowing your neighbor. And so that's what we will explore in points two to three. You can see that in your outlines. Uh, But first, let's build some foundation. Let's ask the fundamental question of why we need unity, especially as a church, but also in our relationships. So come to point one with me. The first thing we must understand is that God's church is designed to be in unity. It is precisely through this unity that a church is able to make a great gospel impact. Take a look at verse 7 to 8. In these verses, Paul commends the unity that the Philippian church had when they uh, went to support Paul on his mission. The church members had unity with each other and they also had unity with Paul because all of them were striving to make the gospel known. Paul says that, Regardless of whether he's in jail or whether he's outside of jail, he continues to stand together with the church in being filled with God's grace. Paul and the church are so awestruck by God's love for them that they are compelled to do whatever it takes to tell other people about the gospel. And so it is precisely out of this unity that the Philippian church was able to financially support Paul. And this is the case even though they weren't as rich as, say, the Corinthian church. And so Paul knew that, practically speaking, unity within a church is the key to their ability to be missional. So that's the first reason uh, that ch- church unity matters. Uh, it enables the church to rally its resources for gospel proclamation. But that's not the only reason it's important. Unity within a church is also a reflection of a spiritual reality. Church, we are one body in Christ. By his blood, Jesus has grafted us into one tree. Whether we like it or not, we're all part of the same spiritual family. All saved by God's grace, all co-heirs with Christ to the throne. We will be spending eternity together enjoying God's presence and also each other's company. But friends, there's no reason to keep this spiritual reality only spiritual. There's no reason why we can't pursue this as a physical reality here and now in our church and in our relationships. In fact, Paul pleads with the Philippian church to do just that in chapter 2 verse 2. You don't have to turn there with me, I'll just read it out. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This sense of being one church, worshiping one God in one spirit is not just reserved for Christ's second coming in the future. No, unity within the church is something we pursue now. And the tangible real world result of that is joy to be clear it is the kind of, uh, to be clear it is the kind of joy that will be fully realized in heaven but it is nonetheless a joy that we can actually experience now because if you think about it at the end of the day it actually boils down to two options we can either live in a way that represents our past reality as sinners separated from God, fighting each other for a sense of significance in this world. And in doing so, we can bring into existence, into existence just a little bit of an experience of hell. Or we can live in a way that is in line with our current spiritual reality as sons and daughters of God by His grace, united with Him and united with each other. And in doing so, we bring into existence just a little bit of heaven. The choice is binary. There, there is no third option, so we must choose wisely. Lastly, unity within the church allows us to be witnesses to God's grace. This is John chapter 17 verses 21 to 23. And this matters especially in our current times, in a world that is constantly divided. Unity is a way to point to the divine. Unity is a way to point to the divine. When the world looks at the church, they see a community of broken, sinful people. But when they see that despite this, we continue to stand united in love and care for one another, that's when they see a taste of God's grace. Even without hearing the gospel, they see it with their very eyes. They see that something supernatural is binding these people together. Friends, if we ourselves have tasted the sweetness of God's grace and we know how good it is, then one of the ways that we can show it to the world is by being unified as a church. And so unity is part of God's design for the church. We have good reasons for wanting to pursue unity, not just within our local church, uh, but also within other Christian relationships, our family, our marriage, our workplaces. And yet, just because we have good reason to pursue unity, it doesn't mean that we do so. We know that unity with one another will build deeper relationships. We know that it will allow us to be more missional. We know that it will help us to be better witnesses. We know that unity within the church is actually what God wants for us. And yet we struggle. Why do we struggle? Well, one of the big reasons, but not the only reason, but one of the big reasons that Paul points to is, again, selfishness. That's what Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 is about. This unity is often caused by selfishness. Deep down, we often have a desire to put ourselves first. We can find ourselves in a constant state of need, and therefore we keep taking and taking and taking. But if we want God's grace to abound within our relationships and in the world, we have to learn to fight against this selfishness. If we want to bear the mark of our Savior, we have to learn how to carry our cross. But we know we can't do this by ourselves. We know that. Every step towards selflessness is every step that we are carried by God, not by ourselves. And so Paul, in our passage, prays for the Philippian church in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And in this prayer, he gives two practical and grace-filled ways by which we can cultivate this sense of selflessness within ourselves so that we can grow in unity within our church and and within our relationships. <clears throat> and at the root of cultivating this selflessness is actually not cultivating selflessness itself. Uh, Paul isn't telling the church to do one selfless act a day, right, to cultivate this habit. No, instead, we, if we take a look at verse nine, take a look at verse nine with me. Paul is saying that selflessness is cultivated from growing in love. But in what sense are you growing in love, Well, in verse 9, we see two specific ways of doing that. We see growing in knowledge and also growing in depth of insight. And now these two phrases are rich with meaning, and so different Bible translations can say it in slightly different ways. But essentially, knowledge refers to knowledge of God, and depth of insight refers to knowledge of people. In other words, by growing in your knowledge of God, And in your knowledge of your neighbor, which is the people around you, you grow in your love. And what we'll see is that as you grow in your love, there is actually a decreasing need to be selfish. And as you grow in your selflessness, you stand a greater chance of having the life-giving, joyful unity within your own relationships and within the church community. And so let's unpack Paul's first suggestion that knowing God ultimately results in unity. So come to point two with me. In verse nine, Paul says that love can abound when we begin to grow in knowledge, specifically knowledge of God. Knowing God means to be so overflowing with his love that you can pour it out into others' lives. The thing is, much of our selfishness comes because we feel like we're in need. We feel the need to get more and more because we feel like we don't have enough. If you don't feel like your emotional needs are met, then chances are you'll find it hard to meet the needs of your spouse. You're in self-preservation mode. If you don't feel like you have enough money, chances are you'll find it harder to give to the causes that you care about. If you don't feel like you are loved by your friends, then it is much harder to give them love because you barely have anything to give. Our selfishness is self-preservation. And in some ways, self-preservation makes a lot of sense because if my spouse doesn't meet my emotional needs, I don't have the resources to care for theirs, right? If I don't have the financial resources to care for myself, then how can I give them to others? If my friends don't love me, how do I have the strength to love them? And why should I love them anyway if they don't love me first? But if we continue along this line of thinking, one thing we might realize is that we depend on other people for our needs, to satisfy our needs. Our desire for love, for comfort, for security uh, is simply too large, these people will never be able to satisfy our needs. These needs of love, comfort, and security will never find their satisfaction in people, and so we will continue to be selfish if we depend on people for these things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, here's the part where knowledge of God comes in it is by knowing God through the gospel of Jesus Christ that your deepest desires for love. For comfort and security are met. It is by meeting God in His Word over and over again that your heart's longings are satisfied. And as you are filled with God's grace through Jesus again and again, your heart overflows and you almost have to pour it out onto others. Friends, the reason why it becomes so much harder to be selfish when you're in deep communion with God. Is because there's nothing more to be selfish about. You can now be emotionally av- you can now be emotionally available for your spouse because your own emotional needs, the need for empathy, the need for mercy, the need for love, all of these things have now been satisfied in God. You don't need as much financial stability because whether you're rich or poor, you have stability in Christ. And it is out of this abundance of blessing not only are our own desires and needs met, but out of an overflow of God's grace poured into our lives, we now have an excess to give to others. That is why in verse 11, Paul prays that the church may be filled with the fruit of righteousness, right? that they may be bursting with the good works that can only come from the grace found in Jesus. Uh, So... Uh, if you wanted to live the lifestyle of the top 0.1% in the world, uh, it would take around $120,000 US dollars a month. Uh, this means eating at the fanciest restaurants, driving the nicest cars, living in the biggest houses, having the nicest holidays, etc. And so if you made more than $120,000 US dollars a month, uh, there's not much you can really do with your excess money. The only place for your excess money to go is for you to reinvest it, to make more money, uh, or you give it away freely. And so that's the sort of attitude that we should have when we consider our own needs. Church, we want to know God so well. We want to be so satisfied in Him, so filled with His love and grace that we have an excess. And it is from this place of overflow that you pour yourself out for others. Friends, our church can only continue to stay united if we, find, if we find our deepest needs met in God. A married couple can flourish together when the husband and wife find their deepest need in God first. And friendships can grow when you are friends with someone, not because you need something from them, but because you have an abundance of love to share with them. And so the way that we apply Paul's prayer in verse 9 is to be saturated in Scripture. It is to be saturated in Scripture every day. Like a cloth that is so wet that it begins to drip with water, you want your heart to be so saturated with God's grace that it begins to drip off onto other people. Because it's a lot easier to give grace when you are filled with it. And it's a lot harder to be selfish when there are no more needs left to fill. Uh, But Paul also talks about a second way to fight back against the selfishness that exists in our hearts. And again, it goes back to growing in our love. And while the primary primary way to grow in love is to be saturated in knowing God and his grace, the secondary way to grow in love is to know your neighbor. So come to point three with me. Now, let's take a look at verse 9 again. Paul says that in order to grow in your love, you need to grow in knowledge and depth of insight, if you're using the NIV. The phrase depth of insight only appears here in the New Testament, and commentators have helpfully pointed out that it refers to the idea of having insight into another person. In other words, in order to love your neighbor better, you have to know your neighbor better. In order to love your neighbor better, you have to know your neighbor better. When you know your neighbor better, it becomes a lot harder to become selfish towards them. Because it's when you really begin to know someone that you begin to love them. And when you begin to love them, it's a lot harder for you to act in your self-interest towards them. Because when you are able to see that this person in front of you is a creature that is fearfully and wonderfully made, that Jesus died for this person, that God himself loves this person, man, it is so much harder to be selfish towards them. The thing is, it is sometimes our refusal to spend time knowing somebody that produces so much judgment on them. How often have you felt unheard or misheard by other people because they didn't bother giving you a listening ear? How often did you wish that you could tell other people, your family, people at church or your spouse, how you really felt or what really happened? You know what it's like to be judged quickly, to be misrepresented, and it's terrible. And so we ought not do the same to others. Each person sitting here in this room today is made in the image of God. And if they are Christians, they are also heirs of God. And so if Christ was willing to descend from heaven to die for this person, then maybe, just maybe, they're valuable enough to deserve a bit more of our time and attention. Because what does a refusal to understand that person actually mean. It means that we would rather assume what that person is like rather than trying to get to know them because it's easier that way. And sadly, that is fundamentally selfish. I remember when I was younger, uh, I had a fear of dogs uh, and that was because of a slightly traumatic experience where a giant Doberman decided to pounce on me at the park. And if you guys have seen Dobermans, they're, they're pretty big, right? And so for a long time I was really afraid of dogs, right? Every time I saw a dog on the street, even if it was one of those tiny Maltese dogs, right? They're like this big tiny. Um, they would freak me out, right? It could be wagging its tail at me, sticking its tongue out, it could have been the friendliest dog in the world, but it wouldn't have mattered. Because in my mind, all dogs were bad. I refused to spend the time to understand dogs because it was easier to just say that all dogs were bad. And it wasn't until I personally got a dog and I raised that dog from being a puppy to an adult that my perception of dogs changed. And now I love dogs. right? But I had to take the time to invest in knowing my dog before I began to love her. And so in the same way, friends, it can be a lot easier for us to put people into categories because it excuses us from really getting to know them and love them. It's easier to just say that all, pe- all young people are soft. It's easier to just say that all old people are slow. It's easier to define a family member as stupid rather than listen to their questions, and it's easier to judge your spouse as ignorant than it is to consider their perspective. But friends, we have to realize that casting this kind of judgment is in many, many ways selfish. It can strip away from the beauty and wonder that God has placed in them as one made in his image. It reduces their complex, God-given personalities into a convenient archetype. And we lose out on so much joy, so much of the joy of knowing someone deeply, and so much of the joy of being deeply known when we make judgments like this. And so, if we are to push back on this selfish tendency to quickly judge our neighbors, Paul tells us that we must get to know our neighbors, And in knowing our neighbors well, we begin to love them well. And in loving them well, we are much less prone to cause division within the church and within our relationships. In other words, taking the time to know your neighbor helps to grow in the kind of unity that God wants for his church. And so how do we actually get to know our neighbor better? Like practically speaking. Firstly, firstly, I hope you realize that most of us here would probably not be friends if it weren't for our common faith in Christ. We come from such a diverse range of cultures and contexts and the glue that holds us together is actually something supernatural. It's the grace of God. It is God working in our hearts by His Spirit to spur us on to continue loving and serving one another. Without God's mercy to us, it would just be so easy to to fight and quarrel until we were divided. And so the first thing we must do in getting to know our neighbor is to rely on the supernatural work of the Spirit in our lives. It is to rely on the supernatural work of the Spirit in our lives. God can shape us and mold us to be able to grow as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we aren't naturally inclined to it because of our sinful selves. And the second application is an obvious, but I think honestly downplayed one. And that is to actually spend time with one another. Morning tea after church service is not enough enough time to get to know someone. I personally don't think anyone can even scratch the surface of knowing who I really am if they're just talking to me for 15 minutes on a Sunday. It's in the meetups, the fishing trips, the after church hangs, the milk tea runs, the cycling trips. It is in those extended periods of exposure to another person that you really get to know them. And in doing that, you really get a chance to love them as a brother or sister in Christ. And so if anything, uh, morning tea after church service is less so a time for catch-up, but more so a time for set-up, right? To set up a time to meet for dinner, to set up a time to go bouldering together, to set up a fishing trip together. Maybe one thing we can do today is to think of a way that we can spend time getting to know someone at church that we usually don't get to know uh, by setting up something. Organize that dinner. Organize that social. God has not saved us just so we can meet up here on Sundays. No, God has saved us to walk life together. So let's strive for that church. And so it is by God's grace that we became unified as one church. And it is by that same grace that we stay unified. We may have a tendency to preserve ourselves, but by God's strength and by his promises, we're able to break out of this innate selfishness and begin to imitate the kind of humility and selflessness that Christ had. A selflessness that comes from having our needs and desires met in Jesus, and a selflessness that comes from recognizing that each and every believer that we come in contact with is a child of God, who he loves, who he cares for, and who He he's died for. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there is beauty in unity. And we recognize that unity within the church is the way to honor you and to be a witness to you. But we see how far short we fall. We continue to be plagued by our own selfish heart. And we repent for all the hurt we've caused because of it. So Lord, please forgive us. And help us to be so filled with your grace and love that selfishness seems stupid. We cannot do this on our own. By your spirit and word, help us. To the glory of your name. Amen.